day had come. It had come finally, the day they had waited for, the arrival of their king. Word was spreading throughout the land of what Jesus had done to Lazarus, that he had come back to life through resurrection power. It was clear and it was evident the Messiah, after generations of waiting, the Messiah had come. But when would he arrive? When would he assume the throne? When would he march into the city on his horse, take his throne, wear his crown, and drive out every Roman soldier one at a time, even if he had to take his sword to every single one of them? When would the king arrive? As people gather for Passover, you have to imagine that there's thousands of them, tens of thousands of them traveling from towns across the nation and from outside of the nation. Anyone who worshiped in the synagogue, even Gentiles or Greeks, would be coming to gather at the capital city. And word is spreading. Did you hear what he did? Did you hear? Four days later, resurrection power. Is it him? It must be him. He must be the one. The day comes. This is John chapter 12. Starting at verse 12. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up and turn to that verse. We are going to read through this Hosanna story and into the teaching that Jesus gives us next. This is what it says. Starting at verse 12. It says, the next day. So after Jesus is anointed by Mary at the supper. The great crowd that had come for the festival heard Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Like I told you before, they're going back to Psalm 118 and grabbing these references of victory and celebration because their king had arrived. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. As it's written in the Old Testament, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things had been written about him and that these things hadn't been done to him. John records the story to be told to the next generation, the arrival of the king. You see, this was a holy moment. They're waving palm branches. Do you remember in the Old Testament when they waved the palms and laid them down? It was the dedication of Solomon's new temple. It was a holy and royal and victorious moment. Palm branches could be used to celebrate victory. And for this, they're excited to the point where coats are being laid down on the road and a donkey's being ridden. Solomon and his own coronation rode a mule into the city, a symbol of peace. But let's take a look at what John records because this is one of the few stories that John records that also Matthew, Mark, and Luke do as well, which means that you can look back and you can see what differences or similarities John chooses to share. When he shares the quotation from Psalm 118, he makes sure to include, blessed is the king of Israel, 
Now, if you look back at the psalm, it doesn't use language that's quite that strong. John is paraphrasing to get across the point. He's the king. And then when he quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, this one he makes a couple changes to. This is verse 15 here in your Bible in John 12. And John writes down, do not be afraid. Now, when Zechariah wrote this in chapter 9, he doesn't use that phrase. He doesn't use the phrase, do not be afraid. John includes that. Why? Because the king is coming and the king's work is done. This one I caught as I was reading through verse 15. Was Jesus riding the donkey or was he seated on it? John says seated. What does Zachariah say? He says riding. Why does John use that word? I remember that I was taught that when a king is riding, he's in motion and there's still a process that he's going through. But when a king is seated, his work is what? His work is done. John changes that word to paraphrase it and teach it to the people who are listening. The king is not in the process of bringing victory. We're waving palm branches because the king has brought the victory. He's a seated king on this donkey. John completely excludes the story of the two disciples going to get the donkey. Why? John doesn't add anything that isn't necessary for him telling the story of Jesus being the king and providing life. Doesn't even include it. You'll notice the crowd was the ones singing Psalm 118, but John includes later this quotation from Zechariah. At first, the disciples didn't even understand it. It's not even until later when Jesus is glorified that they look back and go, wow, the donkey. That's the Old Testament. We completely missed that. I gotta write that down, that's amazing. Verse 17 says, now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. See, in their desperation, the Pharisees are hoping that if they can sow enough discontent, people will disperse from him. We talked about this before, right? They claimed that his miraculous abilities were demons' power. He heals this man's eyes. It must be Beelzebub. It must be. Tells the man to stand up who's never walked on the Sabbath day of all things. It must be Satan. They're trying anything to dissuade people from following this king. Has it worked? You tell me. Hundreds, thousands of people maybe at the gate chanting victory verses, king arriving, coronation verses. And they're looking at each other going, I'm starting to think they're believing in him. I'm starting to think that they might believe he's the king. What are we going to do? This is where John deviates. And if you notice, if you've read this story, Matthew, 
Mark, Luke, what story immediately follows the triumphant entry? What story comes next? He enters the city, goes to the temple, and what does he do? Flips the tables. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that story. He arrives as king. He goes to the place where his throne would be. He expects to find a place of prayer and worship. And what does he find? He finds commerce. He finds robbery. Robbery in a place designed for worship and prayer. And he says, this is not going to work. And he's flipping tables. He's knocking money on the floor. Animals are possibly getting whipped out of there. Especially because this would have been the court of the Gentiles. They would have driven the Gentiles out of their ability to worship at the temple so that they could have their marketplace to extort people for cash. John doesn't record that story here, does he? Where in John did he record that story? Do you remember? That was at the beginning, in chapter 2. Jesus turned water into wine. And then John said, you need to understand, he was the one who went to the temple. He was the one who flipped the tables. He was ushering in a whole new era of worship. Worship that would be upside down from what they had normally experienced. Literally, the tables were upside down. Do you get it? He turned it all upside down. Here in John, though, he records a conversation that Jesus had after he had arrived on that Hosanna Sunday. And this, my friends... This is the prediction of his death. Read it with me, and then we're going to talk about how this applies to our lives, maybe more so than any of John so far. I'm going to start at verse 20, and I'm going to read to 36. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, went and told Jesus. This is Jesus' reply. The hour has come. The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and it dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life, they'll lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said, it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. 
Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark, they don't know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and he hid himself from them. The hour has come. Three different times in the Gospel of John, they spoke about the hour. And what did Jesus say every time? The hour has not yet come. When was the very first time he said that? Do you remember the story? What story was it? He was talking to his mom, wasn't he? The wedding at Cana, water into wine. She said, Jesus, will you do something? They've ran out of wine. And he says, this isn't the hour of my glorification. This isn't it yet, mom. This isn't the hour yet when they're gonna see. This isn't it. Chapter seven, chapter eight, he says it again. This isn't the hour. They tried to grab him. They tried to seize him and arrest him, but he slipped away. It wasn't the hour. And now Jesus says, the hour has come. This is the moment. This is what we've been building towards. Three years, guys, we walked and we preached and we demonstrated God's incredible power for the moment of glorification. You see, if you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they talk about the shame as Jesus' ultimate humiliation. It is. It's a shameful thing that they discuss. And yet John doesn't even use that language. John uses the language of glory. This wasn't Jesus being humiliated in front of all people. This was the greatest display of his power. This was greater than Lazarus. This was greater than the blind man. This was greater than the invalid who couldn't even stand. This will be the one they talk about when God's glory is put on display. The hour has come. Jesus struggled with this, though. John doesn't record the conversation in the Garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't include that. But he talks about his soul being troubled. That was verse 27 and 28. The very reason he came to this earth, the very reason why he did his three years of ministry to reveal himself, was to lead to the moment when Satan would be defeated the ultimate glory of God put on display. Do you see what he said about the prince of this world being driven out? Verse 31, now is the time. 
Do you understand? The whole story was building to the defeat of Satan. Jesus was born in that stable, laid in that manger for the defeat of Satan. He revealed his power to everyone that he met so that they would believe at the moment that he defeated Satan. We talked about this at youth group Friday night. What is Satan's tool that he uses to keep us chained and in bondage? He keeps us trapped in our sin. So to defeat Satan, sin had to be defeated. But sin is only covered by sacrifice. A life is given so that someone's life can be set free. Who would be that sacrifice? Would there ever be a lamb perfect enough to cover that much sin? And if sin is the handcuffs that Satan uses to keep you and I trapped in bondage, the end result of that is death. So as long as Satan can keep us trapped in sin, as long as he can continue to keep the whole world on a destiny towards death and destruction, none of them will be able to come home to the Father. So Jesus will die on this cross, taking away Satan's weapon of sin and then defeating the power of death with his resurrection. So how could he now at this moment turn away from it? But he says, my soul is troubled even at this hour. The weight of carrying the world's sin when he's never sinned. I have to imagine this because I don't know what this would look like. You know the kind of feeling that we feel? When we've sinned and we know we need to take that to God? When we've sinned and we just know something isn't right? Something in between us and him is off. Maybe guilt, shame, just that weight. I've sinned and I need to tell God. Something isn't balanced right now. Now imagine someone who had never had that separation from God ever. Had always had the closest relationship, the highest level of unity. And now he's going to carry all the sin of the world. He's going to go through the Romans... Most vicious form of execution, suffocation on a cross, nails through hands, lifted up on a pole. And he's troubled, but he knows it was all building to this moment. The defeat of Satan. The people are saying, how can this be? The Messiah is supposed to reign forever. How could our Messiah be hung on a cross to die? How could he not be here forever with us? How would a king like that reign But I think verse 25 and 26 might be that answer for us. And I know as I read through this story, it was those verses that I kept coming back to. They really bugged me. Jesus first said that a kernel of wheat needs to hit the ground. It needs to die. And through its death comes its multiplication. Then in verse 25, he says, anyone who loves their life, they will lose it. So what does that mean, they love their life? That's someone who's self-centered. That's someone who is living for themselves because that's their love. Their love is their life. So they live for it. Their decisions, the way they spend their money, the way they raise their family, the way they do their life is aimed at that. Those people, Jesus says, they're just going to lose it. They're going to wake up one day and realize they lost it all. While anyone who hates their life in this world, they'll keep it 
for eternal life. So to hate your life is someone who doesn't love it, who doesn't live for it, who doesn't worship it and serve it. Someone who realizes that their life is not the most important thing, that themselves, they are not the most important thing. Those people are bound for eternal life. Why are they bound for eternal life? Because they're living for something other than themselves. They're living for God. Whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Chapter 13 is the washing of feet. Right? Jesus takes the towel, takes the water. He bends down, lifts their feet one by one and begins to wash it. And they're looking at him going, you're the king. This is the job of the slave. Why are you touching our feet? And he says, that's what the king does. The king stoops down. The king takes the job that no one else wants. The king serves people. But isn't the king worshipped? Don't we bow down to the king? Doesn't the king sit on his throne? As Jesus is bowing down to their feet and says, that's not the kind of kingdom I've come to establish. One where you come before me and wash my feet. I've come to be the servant of all people. The cross was that ultimate moment. This is how we know that someone loves someone else. They lay their life down for their friend. John is going to write that in his gospel in just a couple chapters. This is where Jesus lays down his trophies. This is the crown that he received. But it wasn't the crown that he was destined for, was it? This is where it hits home. He was Messiah King. His crown was supposed to be golden. It was supposed to be jewel embedded. The Romans were supposed to flee from him and his army. He was supposed to go into the temple, assume the palace. The nation would come and they'd bow before him. But he lays down that crown for a different crown, doesn't he? A crown of thorns. And when he takes that crown of thorns, a coronation takes place. They wrap him in a purple robe. The soldiers bow down to him and they crown him. He's crowned. As they all assume a position of worship before him. As Jesus humbles himself not considering his equality with God something to be grasped, he humbles himself, taking the form of a servant, being willing to die, even death on a cross. And they worship him. This Easter, as you and I celebrate, as we reflect and as we teach our kids and we go about this, this faith that we have, we celebrate a king who wore a crown that no one would have expected. But he was defeating an enemy that no one understood. But because he went to the cross, because that perfect lamb lost his life, guess who's set free? I am. 
You know how that makes me feel? Pretty good. Then me and Cooper, as we do prayer time before bed, we thank Jesus for salvation in his mighty name. Why? Because Jesus traded his golden crown for that one. That's why. The reason we're going to come next Sunday and there's going to be a party in this place, a resurrection party, because he wore that crown. Because for you and me, for the rest of our lives, we live in freedom. Our chains have been broken and set free. But we need to follow him. He says the servant will follow him where he goes. Where did he go? To the cross to give up his life. Where are you and I being called to go? To pick up our own crosses, to give up our own lives. That's the trade. If you were to follow this king, then you live in this kingdom. And this kingdom is a kingdom of foot washers. This is a kingdom of people who stoop down and look for others to love and others to serve. We don't sit idly by and expect people to dote on us. We are the servants of this world. We carry the light that Jesus gave us. And this whole world's going to see that. You better believe it. You ready to do that? That's why we're here. We're going to do that. This whole city is going to come to know Jesus. Why? Because we're going to carry that light into every single dark place that we go. They get to choose. Do they want that light or not? But you better believe we're going to carry it there whether they like it or not. We're ambassadors of the king. We wear his colors. We represent him everywhere we go. And they're going to see that. Until the day we die. Glorify God and make him known. That's what everyone told me when I came to Bridgeway. That's what we do. We glorify God and we make him known. Are you ready to do that? You want to make him known? You want to glorify him? I'll cling to the old rugged cross where my trophies, at last, I lay down. Man, you ready to exchange all of that for a crown? Let's pray together. We're going to sing one final song before we go to have lunch. Father in heaven, this is a moment of worship to you. Father, I want to thank you that the crown that you took up wasn't the golden one. It was the one of thorns. That instead of being seated on a throne, you were seated on a donkey. And then assumed the execution position of the cross. I want to thank you that that is the light, the message, and the hope, the grace that you've extended to me, to my family, and my church family. And until the day this church is done, until the day we lock the doors and turn off the lights for the final time, I pray, Lord Jesus, you would give us the boldness to carry that message and carry that hope everywhere we go. To breathe it, Lord Jesus, and live for it. For it to be everything that we love. To lay down our lives, to put ourselves in second place over and over and over again so that you will always remain number one. We bow down before you, King Jesus. We worship you. We cling to this cross. We love you. Amen.